Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He is a former mayor of Boston. He is the Secretary of Labor of the United States of America. Marty Walsh here with our John Farrell after this interesting jobs report. Again, the Dow up 119 points. New York, I'm pleased to say, joining us now on TV and on Bloomberg Radio on the payrolls report. First reaction from the White House with U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Secretary Walsh, great to catch up with you, sir, as always. Help me with this one, because we've all struggled with this labor market report this morning. How would you characterize the state of the labor market right now, Secretary Walsh, in the United States? I would say if you look at what's happened since President Biden's taken office, he's dropped two points off the unemployment numbers. Uh, I'd say we have a strong, strong, strong market moving forward. Obviously, we have job openings that we have to work on. Uh, we still have people out of work. And we, as you mentioned in, 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 the, in the, uh, the, the words before I came on here, uh, we're still dealing with the coronavirus. We're looking at the new variant now to see what impacts that'll have. But overall, I, I, we feel good. I feel good about where we're going as an economy here. Uh, obviously, you brought inflation up as well. You know, the president made some moves this week with, with uh, the oil reserves and, and also, you know, creating an economic plan. Uh, we're seeing people with, with more opportunities and more, more money in, in their bank accounts than this time last year, uh, or, or pre-pandemic, I guess I should say. Uh, so, you know, we still have work to do. There's no question about it, but, but I feel good where we're headed. Let's talk about that work and the work we still need to do. As you know, we talked a lot about where wages are, close to 5%, below where inflation is currently and going into next week. I believe a lot of people in this economy, in this market on Wall Street, Secretary Walsh, looking for something closer to 7 on CPI. Do you still see the benefits of running this economy hot, Secretary Walsh? Are there benefits to doing that as you see things? Well, well, well you know, one of the things I just want to talk this week I went out to Los Angeles. I was out at the ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach. And when you think about the economy, you think about people coming back to work. One of the things when I was out there, you know, we have the longshoremen working 24-7. Not every day, but, but the ability to work 24-7. We're seeing the ships come in. We're seeing the ships unloaded. And there's an issue with truck driving. And when you think about when you think about this economy, and we think about all the different aspects, we really we have to be more intentional now and focus on certain areas. And how do we create better opportunities? So truck driving is one of those areas that we have to create better pathways to bring more people back to work. When you look at this report, you see manufacturing; uh, the numbers are high. You look at transportation; the numbers are high. You look at hospital care and healthcare; the numbers are as high. So we have to we have to start to focus now intentionally in different re, different sectors of the, of the economy to make sure we get we get people trained up and get people back to work. So this is not about a broad-based effort to run an economy hot. You think this is about specifically targeting certain sectors? Is that right? Well, I think we have to target certain sectors now to bring those sectors back. I mean, we look at some of these numbers. Hospitality this month, uh, the numbers are kind of, I don't want to say flat, but but we didn't see growth in hospitality. Uh, We didn't see growth in construction. We saw growth in construction in the sector. We didn't see any growth, actually job loss, in the government sector. So we really have to start looking at these different sectors and see what supports they need. And that's quite honestly what, in the Build Back Better reconciliation plan the president has put out there, there's 20, uh, there's a couple, I think almost $20 billion in, in job training, workforce development money that, that will allow us the opportunity here at the Department of Labor to kind of focus on, on other sectors to, to help create and, and build them up. The reason I ask this question is because there was a big effort to get us back to where we were before the pandemic. And one measure of that one metric was the employment to population ratio, which is back to about 59. 
before the pandemic, it was at about 61. And Secretary Walsh, the Federal Reserve, the administration has talked about getting back to where we were. Do you think that's achievable? How dependent do you think this really is on just the virus? Is there something else going on here in this labor market? Well, yeah, I, I think we have to. I think we, we have to be realistic about the labor market and, and look at what what is the future going to look like. I think that uh, the pandemic has changed the way, or at least had conversations about the way uh, the, the office looks. People working, teleworking. Uh, we've seen thirty percent. I think last month, if I get the number correctly, thirty percent increase in entrepreneurship in this country. So, it, it, you know, th th there is an evolution and a change going on to some degree. I think that measuring measuring the way we do our economy back to February of 2020. I don't know if it will look like that when we get beyond the virus, but I definitely think that with the president and the administration staying focused on creating opportunities. 5.8, almost 6 million jobs created since President Biden's taken office. 4.2% unemployment rate today, which is a good number. We obviously want to continue that number going down. Uh, we've seen better participation in the black unemployment rate drop a whole percent. Women put the unemployment rate four percent. We're starting to see some gains here. Now we do. We still. We, I think we have to continue to acknowledge there's work to be done. Do you personally have more work to do in the seat you're in right now, Secretary Walsh? No question about it. I mean, we have a lot of work to do. We, we have to work on uh, making sure that we implement the unemployment uh, insurance. Um, work that we're doing and kind of uh, re reorganizing unemployment insurance, $2, million, $2 billion. We have an office created, uh, job force, workforce development, training money. I really want to look at changing the way we train uh, workers. I think we want to make sure we're training workers, not just for the jobs of today, but the jobs of the future and thinking about more creating more pre-apprentice programs. We have a lot of work to do here at the Department of Labor. The reason I asked, sir, it's not a personal attack. There was just some news this week that maybe you might be interested in the seat that Charlie Baker might leave empty in the coming year. Uh do you want to respond to that? Do you want to respond to that, sir? You put that right over my head. I wasn't even paying attention. Uh, as I said, <laughs> I have a lot of work to do here at the Department of Labor. Politico <laughs> says you're weighing the run. Is that true or false? Well, listen, the, the governor and myself have a great relationship. We, you know, we were partners for seven, six years in Boston. He, I was uh, one year with Governor Patrick. Uh, we did a lot of work. We, we, what, we started the pandemic together. Uh, we, we got the city of, of Boston, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, at least through the beginning days of the pandemic. Uh, and, and for the last week, I've been, I've been out in L.A., Long Beach, uh, all over the country, here in Washington today. So I'll leave it at that. Should I take a signal from your refusal to answer that direct question? <laughs> There's no signal. I love my job here. Secretary Walsh, we'll let you go, sir. I know you've got a busy morning. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for being with us. The Thank U.S. You. Labor Market Secretary, Marty Walsh there. There's not much here to steer the Fed away from what they've discussed all week when they get together on December yeah, 15th. And this really emphasizes to me, John, they're just going to wait for more data with two different reports there. And a lot of people will parse this, including Jeffrey Rosenberg, Portfolio Manager of Systematic multi-strategy fund at BlackRock. Jeffrey, uh, when you get ambiguity like this, what do you do? Well, it's a really interesting report. I think you guys have broken it down uh, well that it, it may not be so ambiguous when you, when you look behind the headline. The headline is the disappointment on 210, but as Mike McKee just went through, a lot of that looks like seasonality and the impact of seasonal flows coming in lower than what the seasonal factors would otherwise expect. And so you get some disappointment on the headline. As Jonathan just went through, the initial market reaction is all the machines looking at that headline number. 
Give it a minute and you look at what Lisa talked about, which I think is the much stronger message here, the decline in those unemployment rates, the impact of labor force participation finally coming back. This is the strength of the underlying labor market that is speaking here. And I think when you look at the market reaction kind of fading that initial disappointment is spot on. And that's really the bigger message. And Tom, to your last point, I don't think this report really changes anything from the from from the Fed with regards to the labor market. But it is obviously the cross currents between the headline and the underlying components. I think the underlying components here are much stronger. Jeff, we've got to talk about the Fed. When they get together on the 15th, it's not just about the taper conversation. Let's discuss their forecasts. Year end next year, they've got unemployment at 3.8%. <laughs> Jeff, we're almost there. We're at 4.2. How much of an adjustment do we need to see in a couple of weeks? Yeah, we could certainly see the adjustments come down, uh, you know, as they keep pace with how rapidly the labor market is is improving. I, I think they're closer on the on the jobs front than the other forecast, which is of of course the big topic, which is their their inflation forecast. And I, and I think that's going to be the, the the driver into December fifteenth. And of course, you know, the other big story, the elephant in the room here, is that this report. You know, it doesn't have any of the COVID, any of the Omicron issues that we still have in front of us. So over the next 10 days, we're going to find out a lot more. That's going to drive that debate into the Fed meeting uh, on the 15th. Jeff, I would agree with you that the underlying components are much more interesting and point to a very strong uh, report aside from that headline miss. I am, though, confused by average hourly earnings and how much we're seeing wages increase. That was a disappointment. And to me, it actually fell in terms of the pace of wage rises uh, from month to month. What do you make of that? Yeah, it, it's hard exactly to, to know what's going on there. A lot of the month to month variability, Lisa, is confusing by, based on the shift in the underlying mix of who's coming in, who's coming out. So when you look at average hourly earnings as opposed to other measures like employment cost index, uh, what you end up seeing is, you know, a measurement of two things. What's the change in who's coming in and out and what's the change in what they're getting paid? And so when you have more lower wage workers entering the pool relative to higher wage workers, it can push down what you see in average hourly earnings, even if what we think of as kind of a fixed pool of workers, wages are going up. The message on those fixed pool uh, metrics have been for a while now clear that we're seeing pricing power come back to wages. And I don't think this disappointment on average hourly earnings should be overly interpreted as, as kind of challenging that story. I think it's still a strong labor market with strong labor market pricing and wage inflation. 50 minutes away from the up and in power stateside. Futures up 18, up four tenths of 1% on the NASDAQ. NASDAQ 100 futures up six tenths of 1%. Counting down to the up and in power, we'll be catching up with Mohammed Al Arian, Rick Reader, Mike Collins, and Anastasia Amoroso, Tom, to really break down this jobs report and get first reaction as well from the White House in about 50 minutes' time. You no, know, the reaction as well of a market lifting up. I note the NASDAQ uh, 100 after all this up six tenths of a percent. And the VIX is a key statistic for me, really escaping the 30 and 28 level into 26.18. Again, Jeffrey Rosenberg with us uh, with BlackRock. Jeff, I, I want to talk about systematic and your responsibilities at BlackRock. And I don't want to care about, I don't care about systematic to 1231 or even out into January. 
How are you managing and allocating capital out to the middle of next year, say the July 28th Fed meeting? Yeah, this is, this is a really good question, Tom, because what we're really debating is, you know, the bigger picture away from today's report is the Fed is talking about accelerating the pace of tapering, which is so that they can accelerate the pace of tightening. Uh, and, you know, markets have priced that in. So, so a lot of that changes with us. The bigger change that we all have to contemplate is the impact on real interest rates. You've had a spectacular level of support for asset inflation across all markets, whether they be financial markets or otherwise, from exceptionally low levels of real interest rates. And the Fed is basically saying it's time to change that outlook. So we should expect a very different financial market outlook in an environment where Fed policy is reacting to the exceptionally accommodative uh, uh, settings of negative real interest rates. And so that challenges a lot of uh, investment returns that we've seen, investment portfolio uh, strategies. And, and so we're looking at, you know, where are their vulnerabilities and where are their opportunities in a rising real rate environment? I just want to point out that as we speak and as traders parse through this report, two-year Treasury yields have turned positive or turned positive on the day, I should say. Uh, once again, 0.6171%. People assessing the underlying components here and seeing a very strong report. Jeff, with respect to Fed hiking, how many rate hikes can this market withstand and not be disrupted from a risk asset performance perspective? Really great question, because look at what the bond market is telling you with this massive curve flattening, right? So it's a very clear message from the bond market that it can't withstand that much increases. So what you see priced into bond markets is an expectation that the Fed is going to do what they're telling you, increase the pace of, of rate increases. We've priced in from one hike in 2022 to two hikes. So it's not a super aggressive increase. And when you look further out, you see that that pace of pricing in of interest rates by the Fed starts to fade relative to the Fed's dot plots. And that is reflective of the expectations that the market financial market conditions tightening, the impact of rising real interest rates just can't handle as much of a normalization of interest rates as the kind of full trajectory of Fed normalization and the dot plots otherwise would say. And that flattening of the yield curve, you know, is a message that we should pay attention to. It's basically saying as you move into an aggressive Fed tightening policy that the impact is going to slow the economy, tighten financial conditions, and is a is a is a a warning of a recessionary right. indicator. Whether the Fed goes there, we'll see. But that's what the bond market is saying. Okay, I, I agree. The bond market's saying that. But very quickly, or Jeff Rosenberg, as we move on to the equity markets, the ambiguity of today's report does it change the path or the the belief, the cadence of taper to tighten? I don't think it. I don't think it does. I, I think that, and as Lisa just highlighted, you know, the turnaround in the two years. I think the market figuring out that this isn't uh, gonna. This yeah. is not a disappointing uh, payroll report yeah. that takes the Fed out. So I think the pace is as the market. The narrative is is still the same. Pricing in the acceleration. <laughs> now, how far the market gets ahead of the Fed, or whether the market can push the Fed to go even further than that, is kind of the next right. phase. 
days, you know, we've priced in basically, you know, two hikes in 2022, accelerating that first hike to June or July of next year. You know, will will we get more? I think we're going to have to see more data, mm-hmm. more worries from the Fed on inflation and a willingness to be more aggressive uh, before All we right. get there. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much for the treatment this morning on this jobs report. Right now, on this economy, digesting this unemployment report, and of course, markets, a Dow up 83 uh, points. A lift, not like the futures lift we saw off of 830, but nevertheless, uh, up here, the VIX 26.55, a state of the American economy. Tiffany Wilding joins us with PIMCO, their chief U.S. economist. Tiffany, your Excel spreadsheet into 22, what's the biggest economic plug-in on your spreadsheet? What's the biggest mystery? Um, well, with the labor market report today, I mean, I, I think I would I would just point out that the participation rate um, is going to be, I think, really key um, and how much labor supply, you know, we do get back because, you know, I, I think that as Marty Walsh sort of hinted at when he was speaking, I think the labor market post-pandemic, you know, could look different in, in many aspects than it is pre-pandemic. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously been talked about that we, we've had a lot of retirements as a result of, of this pandemic. You know, I think those people probably won't be as quick to come back to the labor market. But in addition to that, I think that there, there are some more frictions um, in, in this labor market now. And, and those have to do with, um, you know, the types of jobs that people prefer are changing and where jobs are, are located, where they're demanded versus where the labor is supplied. That's also changed as a result of telework and people moving out of large cities. Um, so it's, I think the question is, how long do, do these things kind of take to resolve themselves? Um, and of course, that's going to that's gonna matter for the participation rate next year. Yesterday, Mark Kiesel joined a Bloomberg Intelligence uh, credit panel and talked about how he was glad to see the Fed changing its rhetoric and that the Federal Reserve is way behind the curve. Uh, does that represent your view as well? And does this labor market really feed into that? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's certainly a risk, uh, you know, that we have higher and more persistent inflation that than the Fed, uh, you know, or, or other forecasters are projecting. Um, but but ultimately, though, I do think that the the Fed is managing the risk of, of higher inflation by, you know, by talking about the fact that they're probably, you know, that they're going to increase the pace of tapering. We think they're now going to get the, the asset purchase programs done by March. That gives them more room this year to hike rates earlier um, than, than we're previously thinking. We, you know, we now think they probably hike in June. So I think the Fed is, is moving towards, ma- or has moved towards managing uh, these upside inflation risks. You know, and, and ultimately, although inflation has proven to be more persistent, um, you know, we have to remember that we had the Delta variant and the, the COVID cases that have been uh, more elevated, I think, for longer than many expected as well. And that had, you know, implications for not only U.S. inflation, but also global inflation. So our, you know, our own view is still that inflation does moderate uh, next year, you know, and that, and that the Fed really isn't behind the curve. But I think there's certainly a growing risk of that and a risk that the Fed has to manage. There's also a growing risk that the Fed is going to have to tighten conditions to deal with inflationary impulses that do not relate to monetary policy. The idea that Ellen Zentner raised of Morgan Stanley this morning that perhaps the Fed's response to Omicron is to actually tighten sooner rather than later, simply because you see some of the supply chain disruptions persist. What's your view on that? Well, I think one of the reasons 
one of the things that have contributed to the elevated inflationary prints is the fact that we have seen people substitute away from services towards goods. Um, and that overall, you know, obviously the, um, you know, the, the post-pandemic stimulus that we've gotten, you know, has, has boosted uh, consumption of goods and, and the capacity, and that's run up against uh, clear capacity constraints. So if, you know, if, if, if Omicron, uh, you know, you know, basically uh, prolongs this very high, high, uh, high pace of, of goods demand that we've seen over the last year, we're still going to have these sorts of capacity constraints uh, that we're running up against because it does seem like on the supply side, it's much less inelastic. In other words, uh, it expands much less than we had thought. You know, so I think, I think that there is room for the Fed to try to um, alleviate some of that demand a little bit until the supply can catch up. Um, but, but you also have to remember here that it's tricky because monetary policy works through long and variable lags. And so the tightening that the Fed does today, you know, that really starts to, uh, you know, filter through the economy in a more meaningful way, you know, a year to maybe even two years out. So, um, you know, they, they have to be a little bit careful here. Is inflation going to come down by itself without yeah. them moving, um, you know, or, or is it going to be more persistent? And I think that's really the key question. Let me circle back to one final question, which I guess takes us back six months. Is tapering tightening? Well, I mean, I think it depends on, on what the market had priced in previously, right? Because, I mean, it's about market expectations. So if the Fed, you know, is announcing a faster, you know, that they're going to, uh, uh, you know, likely announce a faster pace of the per- or tapering, excuse me, you know, then, then I think that that's, a, you know, it could be a surprise to the markets. Markets have to price that in, and that um, implies, mm-hmm. you know, some financial conditions tightening. The other thing that's important here is the link, even though the Fed has tried to delink it, the link between tapering and rate expectations you know, it definitely, if they get the purchase programs done sooner, it allows them, um, you know, the opportunity or, or the option to to hike sooner as well. Yeah. You know, and so certainly that's tightening. Tiffany, thank you so much. Tiffany Wilding, a brief here from PIMCO. Right now on a Friday, as we plan for the weekend, as we try to stagger through this holiday season with Delta, Omicron, and the other Greek letters I can't pronounce, we gain perspective from Andrew Pekos. He's professor of virologist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And of course, Mr. Bloomberg uh, has a modest interest in this TV and radio platform as well. Dr. Pekos, I want to talk about the reality of Johannesburg, Pretoria, and the rest. And I want to look at Adrian Purin, who's an internationally acclaimed virologist in South Africa. Tell us the, the, the back and forth this weekend in South Africa as they inform pros like you about Omicron. Well, it actually starts before Thanksgiving. Uh, sequences were being distributed through the research networks that are focused on COVID-19 before Thanksgiving. So we saw these sequences, and of course, they registered to us as being on of significant concern on paper. But then the Thanksgiving Day announcements of the spread of this virus mm-hmm. through South Africa really gave the entire world a head start. I mean, my lab is ready this week to do Omicron-specific experiments, and it's only because the South African public health uh, and scientific community shared all of their information about sequences as well as case numbers um, so early. The world got a head start, and we are better prepared now to handle this because of their efforts. When will we see results from labs such as yours? 
Uh, two things that I'm really looking for now, right now. Next week will be important to follow surges in hospitalizations in South Africa because that's about that two-week window post the emergence of this virus where we expect to see the hospitalization rates uh, move. Remember, hospitalization rates uh, lag behind case rates. And then as soon as we get isolates, and we have isolates in the U.S. right now, um, laboratories will be telling us how well the antibodies from vaccine and infection uh, cross-react to Omicron. And that'll be that first hint about how widely we expect this virus to be able to transmit. Dr. Pekosh, until we find out that information, it's hard to know whether we're underplaying or overplaying uh, this whole new variant. What would your recommendation be as people head to Christmas parties, as people go into the office, they want to engage with other people? Do you think that it is time to actually restrict activity a little bit more, or do you think that people need to go about their lives and act as though this is just another uh, kink on the way to recovery? Right now, I would suggest two ways to be proactive in a, in a positive way. Number one, vaccines. Go out and get your booster. Go out and get your vaccination if you haven't gotten it. If you've been infected, go out and get your vaccine because we know that that increases your immunity. Right now, we've got a window of time where we as a population here in the U.S. can increase our immunity. And even if some of that doesn't cross-react to Omicron, the more immunity, the better. And it will, it will protect us against severe disease uh, if Omicron does begin to spread. And then the second thing is to think about testing protocols. One of the critical things in the Biden plan that may go under people's radar screens is the use of at-home tests. That is an incredibly powerful tool for us to really intervene and stop people who are potentially Trans, going to transmit the virus. And utilizing those at-home tests is going to be very, very critical to really controlling this Omicron surge. And let's not forget the Delta surge that we're still in the middle of. Andy, because your laboratory is working specifically on Omicron, what is your sense of its virulence? I know that we're going to get the actual data next week, but on a preliminary basis, a lot of people have found that, yes, vaccines do prevent a severe illness. And it does seem like perhaps you're not seeing as much of a surge in hospitalizations yet as you would might expect. What's your sense of what the reality is? Yeah, I think we really need to wait one more week. You know, Darn. <laughs> the vaccination, yep. You know, travelers are the primary people that have been picked up now with, um, with, with, Omicron, they have a tendency to be a more highly vaccinated population. So some of the data we're seeing now from the U.S. and from Europe is really skewed to vaccinated populations. In the next week, um, it, and South Africa will be the lead on this, we'll be starting to hear how the various populations are doing with respect to infection and disease severity. So that's really going to be the critical thing. Andy, always great to catch up with you, sir. It's good to hear from you. Andrew Pekos there of Johns Hopkins. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.